Over the spring of 2020, we at Salt and Light Media dedicated a lot of time to speaking to bishops about the COVID crisis. We spoke about struggles, challenges, blessings, and opportunities. Those conversations were part of a TV series titled Faith in a Time of Crisis that you can watch at saltandlighttv.org. While working on that program, another crisis erupted caused by the murder of George Floyd at the hands of police officers. In the midst of the coronavirus, suddenly the church had to respond to a different situation, one that has been part of American history for generations. It was then that we spoke to two African-American bishops. We hoped that they would help us understand racial tensions and white privilege in the church and how we as Catholics must respond to racism. Today, on this special edition of the Salt and Light Hour, we revisit some of these interviews. We begin with a conversation with Archbishop Richard Smith of Edmonton. Like many dioceses, Edmonton found itself in a financial crisis. Archbishop Smith tells us how they found faith in the midst of it. And then we speak with Bishop Sheldon Fobb, chair of the USCCB Ad Hoc Committee Against Racism, and Bishop Emeritus of Memphis, Terry Steib. We end the program with a conversation with Cardinal Gerald Lacroix of Quebec City, who gives us a surprising take on how the Church must move on from these times of crisis. We hope that these conversations will help you find your faith during this time of crisis. Remember to visit us at saltandlighttv.org if you're not able to listen to the full show and to comment on what you hear or to ask any questions. Look for me, Deacon Pedro, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We begin now with Archbishop Richard Smith of Edmonton. The economic crisis triggered by the COVID-19 response greatly affected the church, where parishes and diocesan offices were forced to lay off employees as donations decreased. In May 2020, I spoke with Archbishop Richard Smith of Edmonton about how the crisis was affecting the economy of the province of Alberta and how they were coping with the coronavirus pandemic. I've heard that, I mean, it's not ideal circumstances, but the amount of people that are being reached that maybe we're not reaching under normal circumstances is... Well, uh, one is very interesting example of that is uh, in our inner city here in Edmonton, we have a parish that for years has been dedicated to the First Nations peoples. Mm -hmm. So the pastor there, who himself speaks Cree, he uh, does a daily live stream mass as well as one on the weekend. But he was telling me not too long ago that the uptake on that is enormous. He's getting, even on a daily basis, thousands of people that are linking into this wow. from across the prairie provinces. It's a, it's a wonderful outreach to the Indigenous peoples that he's able to affect simply by putting a camera in front of himself and saying the mass, you know? Mm -hmm. So, no, it's not. It's not ideal. We don't want this. We want to be together in our churches. But um, we trust that when these limitations come to us, the Lord can turn it to the good. And if we, if we take a look at what's unfolding, we can see that, boy, there's a lot of people that maybe are being reached through this that maybe had not been reached before, and they're hearing the gospel. And hearing right. the message of hope at a time when we really need to hear that unique message of hope that can only come from the gospel. Yeah, I know, I know. There's always there's always opportunities, and and God has a way to make all things new. Um, 
there's a rumor that in your archdiocese you're considering reinstating public masses. What can you tell us about that? Oh, well, at, at this stage, what we've done, uh, everybody's got to be looking ahead, and we all want to be reinstating public celebration of Mass, of course. That's not unique to me or to this province. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is something where the circumstances are so complex, we need to think this through carefully. So what we've done and what we just recently announced is not the reinstitution of the public celebration of Mass, but uh, the establishment of a task force to study this. All right. And what we would need to study would be timelines. When would we do this? And that can only be determined in close dialogue with the government. It's it has now introduced its own relaunch plan, mm -hmm. which has gonna unfold over months. Right? So at what point do we fit in with that and how? And so that's part of the dynamic. We also have to look at, all right, how do we continue to do social distancing within the church? How, what's that going to mean in terms of what spacing we mark off and so on? Yeah. The really critical point obviously is going to be the distribution of Holy Communion. Mm -hmm. um, if it is possible that, the trans, that doing this might transmit the virus, what do we need to do in order to make sure that does not happen? Mm -hmm. How do we sanitize? How do we protect? I don't know the answers to that. I know. That would be... But we're, we're, our task force will have, as part of it, obviously, some infectious disease specialists that can look at what we would like to do and can give us advice as to whether or not that would work, that would be yeah. something that can uh, unfold in a way that doesn't promote the spread of the virus or if it's something we need to avoid. Um, lots to work out there, but we'll, we'll work at it and knock heads together and see what we can come up with. Yeah, yeah, lots to consider there. Um, you mentioned earlier about the, the financial fallout or the economic fallout that's affecting the whole province, not just Edmonton. Um, I can imagine that that is also affecting parishes. I know it's happening in, in, in other uh, places where parishes are closed. They're not having the donations or that they normally get. Um, some parishes have had to lay, lay some of their staff off, um, some chanceries even. I, I don't know. How has that affected well, you and your parish? It's very, very painful. Um, the donations are dropping for sure. And we're breaking all the appeals that we can using um, the communication technologies available to us. We've ensured that every one of our parish websites has a donate button, and we've been sending out letters, and I've been doing video, another video message was on that, yeah. um, encouraging people to donate. But the fact remains that the income, the receipts just are not there the way that they have been, and we rely entirely on those donations, which and means what we are able to prepare to pay for people. Yeah. Sorry. To sorry. sorry. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Um, because I think that a lot of us think understand how that affects the parishes, but maybe people don't understand how that would even affect your office, the chancery. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. No, it does it, it dramatically because, as in as in most uh, diocesan operations, the revenue that comes here is a certain percentage of the revenue that is collected in the parishes. So to the degree that revenues drop off in the parishes, they will drop off here too. And because of that, 
Um, we've had to lay off a significant number of people, a temporary layoff, taking advantage of all the government programs because I wanted to make sure that our people are still secure, as, as secure as they can be, even if they have to make this sacrifice at one point. So at, at this point, so we're able to take advantage of those programs and and at least try to ensure at least 80% of, of what they had been accustomed to receiving they can for the next number of months. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, it's uh, it's a very, very painful thing to go through. Yeah. Uh, uh, we It all came into effect for us just last week and a lot of tears, a lot of sighs, uh, because yeah. these are your colleagues that you've come to love and, and yeah. really work with conjointly in ministry, sharing their right. love for the gospel and wanting to sh to spread it and mm -hmm. to see them have to walk away is really challenging. Yeah. Um, anyway, there's where we are and yeah. trust the whole thing to, to the Lord and his goodness and his providence and yeah. try to get back to some kind of degree of normalcy before too, too mm -hmm. long. And if the government, I mean, it's comforting to know that at least at, at a at a provincial level, the government has declared that that churches are essential. So, are some of those sus subsidies that apply to other industries or other businesses do they apply to the parishes or to your office? Um, some do, and some don't. Um, I want to be just clear. I hope I didn't miscommunicate. There's been no formal decree on the part of the government that this is essential service. That was a comment from the, the chief medical officer, but. Nevertheless, I think that's a sentiment that, that would be held by many in government yeah. leadership here in the province. A lot of the employment programs, provincial, federal, yes, uh, we're able to take advantage of. I think some other charitable grants that might be available for some nonprofit organizations may not apply to houses of worship. Okay. The details of what programs apply to which, that escapes me right now, but uh, there is some support. Mm -hmm. I can't uh, uh, stop thinking that this is an opportunity for you to to do a whole other season of uh, nothing more beautiful <laughs> online. <laughs> well, I'll be happy to get you guys back here one way or the other, whether it's in person or online or whatever. You know, I, I mean, gave to nothing more beautiful. Every life matters. That was all really. That was really really good. Yeah, this whole this whole thing, though, whether it's a program like that or any other way, it really underscores the need to communicate, and it really underscores Deacon Pedro the nature of who we are. Mm -hmm. If we're church, we are a people who ipso facto communicate. Yeah, and we reach out and communicate with the most important message ever: life, faith, hope, joy in Jesus Christ. There's an awful lot I think we need to ponder and what are the lessons that we're learning in all of this. Um, but chief among them has to be the centrality of a communications ministry that takes advantage of every opportunity, every technique possible to get the message out there because there's nothing more beautiful, there's nothing more important out there than this gospel of our Lord. Yeah, I was going to ask you about lessons, and, and that is one that I have been hearing from a lot of other uh, bishops across the country, that we have to proclaim the word and use any any way we can, any means possible, and we're learning, uh, we're being forced uh, to do it this way. Um, I think, Deacon Pedro, in terms of lessons learned, this is something that we can all reflect upon, I think, and I'm just starting to a little bit. Uh, I 
it would be important, I think, to invite all of us, and I think all of society, even more importantly, to reflect upon our experience. Because what has been arising naturally in the global response to the pandemic are some key fundamental principles at the heart of Catholic social doctrine. Mm -hmm. People are just allowing to arise spontaneously and naturally within themselves, mm -hmm. uh, showing that our social doctrine, it's not something we pull out of the air, but it, it really is grounded in the nature of the human person, the human person who has this dignity, created the image and likeness of God, and created for communion. So we've seen the whole world acknowledge the supremacy of life, the dignity of the human person, the common responsibility, the shared responsibility we have for the common good, the centrality of the family. Mm -hmm. A lot of families are really discovering the joy right now of being together and learning to live together again. Mm -hmm. um, solidarity, the universal destination of goods, I think, is another one, especially when we hear, I think it was just this weekend when the Holy Father said, well, if we're back, um, developing a vaccine, we're going to find one, let's make sure it's available for everybody. Huh? So. These are principles that the church has taught for generations. Mm -hmm. But now people are seeing it for themselves, even without recognizing it might be the heart of Catholic social doctrine. I think there's an op evangelical opportunity there that we need to ponder. That was part of a conversation I had with Richard Smith, Archbishop of Edmonton. I spoke to him as part of our TV series, Faith in a Time of Crisis. To watch the whole interview, go to saltandlighttv.org slash faith in a time of crisis. Send me your thoughts. How did the crisis affect your parish or diocese? Look for me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or simply send me an email, pedro at saltandlighttv.org. Coming up is an interview with Quebec's Archbishop Cardinal Gerald Lacroix, but first, a conversation on race. It was impossible to ignore the events that were unleashed by the death of George Floyd in May 2020. There were protests, riots, calls to defund the police, and experts speaking about racism and white privilege, reminding us that black lives matter. In order to put this into context for us Catholics, I spoke with Bishop Shelton Fab. He's the Bishop of Homa Thibodeau and chair of the USCCB Ad Hoc Committee Against Racism. With him was the Most Reverend Terry Steib, Bishop Emeritus of Memphis. Bishop Fab, let me start with you because you are chair of the U.S. Bishops uh, Committee Against uh, Racism. Yeah. And uh, in fact, th that committee put out a pastoral letter two years ago against racism. So I thought that maybe just to make sure that we're all talking about the same thing, how how are how should we define racism? Yes, racism, and I'm going to quote from Open Wide Our Hearts, the U.S. Bishop's uh, pastoral letter on racism, and it says, racism arises when either consciously or unconsciously a person holds that his or her own race or ethnicity is superior and therefore judges persons of other races or ethnicities as inferior and unworthy of equal regard. When this conviction or attitude leads individuals or groups to exclude, to ridicule, to mistreat, 
or to unjustly discriminate against persons on the basis of their race or ethnicity, it is sinful. So in a nutshell, racism is seeing myself as superior to someone based on race. And when we act on those feelings, it is not only evil, it also becomes sinful. Sin. So that's what racism is. So it's not just a, a mindset? Does it have to involve action or is... I think I would say, you know, the mindset is bad too. And when that mindset leads one to commit actions, it, it becomes sinful. I think the mindset in and of itself is bad and then you act on that. Right, because we've, we've, we've heard and I, and I, not, not at the risk of being semantic because people talk about stereotypes we talk about prejudice we talk about racism we talk about assumptions we talk about discrimination all those things i think are are different yes. um, but they're very much rooted in the same in the same place which is having an assumption about a certain group of people correct viewing myself as superior based on race right and that may lead to discrimination if it's an action exactly yes okay. um can you maybe, uh, maybe uh, Bishop Terry, if you can give us some examples of, I think that we, we immediately think racism, you think about the extreme examples, but I think the, the danger is in the less obvious uh, examples. Can you give me some, some examples, uh, some less obvious examples of racism? Well, when one acts, for example, in uh, where people live, uh, in uh, the housing, where can I go to live? Or in uh, the whole health system, you know, am I taken care of? You know, or are they taking care of me? Or, or is it, uh, am I left out of that equation? You right. know, and um, uh, also in, in, uh, in uh, uh, where can I go for, for in, in the past for schooling? Or where can I go, you know, to, to uh, to be part of the whole system, as opposed to well, there were certain areas you can do certain things you can't do, certain loans you can make, certain loans you cannot make. Right, right. Do you think do you, do you think that there is some of that is innate in our human nature to want to stick to what we know and to f fear or dislike what we what is foreign? Well, I think in with racism, it's based on uh, the, and, that inherent inherent bias that we have that we have cultivated over the years from slavery on. Right. That all oh, that also that we don't even think about it. It was just that that's how we were brought up, and that's how we're doing things. Yeah, because I've been I've been thinking that having a particular worldview. A, a white, if a white privileged worldview, um, that of course, as a as a white, and I'm a Latin American, but I'm probably the, the whitest Latino in North America. Um, that that we, I just accept it because I just accept that that's the way the world is. And if I don't see the more obvious forms of racism, then I might think that racism doesn't exist. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think you know. That is why so much of the answer to overcoming racism is encountering people who are different from me. Yes. And listening to their stories, you know, um, for example, uh, the stories of, of uh, recently I invited people to ask someone of color, uh, what do you think about the death of George Floyd? 
And one person said, you know, uh, that uh, they approached, approached another person of color and asked, you know, I really am interested in knowing what do you think about the death of George Floyd? And they said the woman broke down in tears because her son was turning 16 and she was going to purchase a car for him. And she was absolutely terrified of what might happen with her son in the car should he encounter the police. And she was so fearful and yet she knew she had to buy him the car. And the person listening to her who was Caucasian, who was white, was amazed and said, I never even thought about that. You know, I bought my child a car and put them in the car. And, but it was a different perspective. It was someone else's experience of racism and they learned something or they saw it in a different way. And, and that encounter really touched them and they, they understood, you know, mm -hmm. something as simple for me, something that I never think about can be something that is huge or even dangerous for someone else. Yeah, exactly. And that those are the types of conversations I've been having in the last couple of weeks. Um, things that I would never think about, about being followed or watched closely as I go into a store. Yes. Um, yes. And, you know, the woman who was telling about her, her, her African-American son, whom she was buying a car for, appreciated being asked the question. Hmm. Right. Very touched that the person took the time to ask, how do you feel? And she just broke down crying. And she said, I'm so thankful you asked me and let me tell you. And this is something two mothers can identify. I mean, children, yeah. definitely there's a link there and an understanding. So, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. And um, there was a scene, there was a scene of the, uh, the little girl asking the policeman a couple of, uh, about two weeks ago about, you know, to the policeman, are you going to shoot us? Yes. Yeah. Really you know, yeah. and automatically, and, and I'm grateful the police bent down and simply said, no, says, uh, you know, you're going to the parade, just go to the parade and everything will be all right. Uh, just don't break anything. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. Now, both of you would have grown up um, in the United States, um, in mm -hmm. the South, with this whole history of, you know, racial tension or, or um, what was it like for, for the two of you to grow up in, in America? Well, I grew growing up in the South. I grew up in the, it was very segregated. Yeah. Um, I went to school. Uh, it was, uh, there was a school for the, for the, for the blacks and it was school for the whites. Um, uh, I grew up, we had a house and my, the neighbors on right, my, our right and our left were white and we, we as kids dealt with them fine but then we went to school that changed the whole thing around really uh, uh even within the church growing up uh the the blacks sat in the back of the church and that was that was just the way it was until Archbishop Rommel changed that changed mm -hmm. that around uh, and so everything was then was segregated. They the, uh, the wanted to go to the movie, the only movie in the town we had. The, uh, uh, the blacks were upstairs and the whites were downstairs. Mm. And yeah. that, that's, that's segregated. Yeah. I wanted to go to, the, uh, to become a priest, go to the, the, the seminary to study. Mm -hmm. The only place I could go was the Bible Missionaries in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi 
which were, was for African-Americans. Right. Because you couldn't go to the, the diocesan schools. Right. So even in the church, that was a common... So and that wasn't this long ago. Yes. No. <laughs> no. No. Would that, you... that was, uh, you know, the uh, the whole bracket, but it, it was it was uh, kind of a segregated part. So you really never got to really know and know one another beyond the stereotypes and stuff that you learn. Right. Uh, Bishop Fab, was it similar for you, or did you did you ever feel afraid for your life because of your skin color? Now, I grew up after, uh, I was born in 1963, so, you know, the part of my early life that I remember was after civil rights legislation had, you know, begun mm -hmm. to have been passed in the United States, and it's um, not that it changed overnight, but I grew up in um, an African-American part of town. All of our neighbors were African-American. I went to an African-American church, St. Augustine Church in New Rose. I have to give them a, a shout out. And... Um, I went to a local Catholic school that had been integrated. And, you know, my parents, I, I think my parents shielded us from a lot of it. And, and growing up you know, in an African-American part of town, you know, that was not my, my experience, but I do think my parents shielded us from that. But when we did experience it, I remember my mom and dad telling us, you know, uh, in so many words, it's more their problem than yours. Mm -hmm. Just don't worry about it. It's their right. problem. It's not your problem. So much of my life was, was you know, I remember after civil rights legislation, was there racism? Yes. I think my parents shielded us from a lot of it. And even when we did experience it at the school or wherever, my parents made sure that we knew it's their problem, not your problem. Right. Yeah, and my and my, my mom and dad would say the same thing too. They would say, "Well, for they would tell us, you hate the sin, but don't hate the sinner." Right, and that's I guess a way to to deal with it, but it's also a way to to accept that that's just the way things are, and that's what I think where so many are trying to change. Um, can you help me understand? Because the 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 phrase white privilege that has been used so much more than I've ever heard in the last month. Um, where does that come into play? How do I, because I don't, I don't, I don't see it, but yeah. you would say that I just by my skin color have more privilege than either the two of you, even though you're both bishops. Correct. Yes. You know, white privilege is, um, is that phrase that, that is sometimes, uh, used to define the phenomenon of European Americans, of, of white Americans, not having to struggle as hard or mm -hmm. uh, as it's, it's less difficult for them to get the same opportunities uh, as a person of color. Uh, and of course, white privilege can mean different things to different people, but that's kind of it in a nutshell, that that privilege allows you to obtain more at, at less struggle. Mm -hmm. um, now, white privilege is is uh, is more seen as an effect of racism, you know, an, an outgrowth of, of racism rather, uh, you know, than uh, than racism in and of itself. But it's the idea that because of skin color, you know, because of systemic racism, the way you would be viewed as a white person, the expectations that are, are uh, given to you, those privileges that are given to you, 
you have to struggle less to obtain what people of color would, would have to do because of systemic racism. Right. Um, and you may not even know it. You, you, you don't even know it. You know? Yeah, no, of course we don't. Um, Bishop Terry, would you, would you, would you say that, and maybe this is not a fair question because you you only belong to one ethnic group, but do you, would you say that the the racism or discrimination that other ethnic groups face latinos uh, native americans asians um is different in the united states than the racism that blacks face i i think it's it's the same but it has different forms different outlets for example with the uh, with the uh the whole um hispanic component it's more the immigrants you know and they're coming in who they are perceived to be you know as opposed to the uh, the blacks who were slaves here and and were and were, and were controlled by mm -hmm. uh, by others, but basically it's that same uh, idea of I am superior to you, so you have to listen to me. So we don't want you coming in because of such and such. Yeah, and it's interesting because every wave of immigrants, I mean, have faced some sort of discrimination, but at some point they become assimilated. Um, yes. That doesn't seem to be the case with, with African-Americans. Um, I think that, you know, it, it is the same, you know, any racism, any is wrong. But when you, when you deal with racism against African-Americans, it roots itself in chattel slavery, which mm -hmm. was worse than any other slavery known, you know, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Uh, worse, it was horrible. And so much of it brings us back to that wound that is here in the United States. You know, racism brings us back to so many wounds, but for African-Americans, it brings us back to that very deep wound of, of slavery and, and the, the outcome of slavery, you know, the, the lynchings and the other things that were perpetuated against them. So all racism is wrong and awful and evil and sinful. But particularly for African Americans, there's just something even worse because it roots itself in a history that is longstanding. Mm -hmm. Right. I guess that's mm -hmm. why Open Wide Our Hearts uh, says that the evil of racism still festers in the United States, maybe in a right. way that it doesn't in other places. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's the mm -hmm. wound of slavery. It's the wound of. Uh, not wanting to talk about it. It's the wound of not attempting to understand. It's just an open, festering wound, as we bishops have said. And it's time to begin to heal that wound. Mm -hmm. Past time to begin to heal that wound. The, the pastoral document against racism, we've mentioned the, the title. It's, it's called Open Wide Our Hearts. And it, and it says that racism, it, it can be found in I guess in in our heart. So it's not uh, just ideas that we have. It's not just actions, but it's in the heart. Wh why is that, Bishop Fab? I think it's it's um, you know the heart is is the place where we stand before God, and we own our 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 gifts, and we own our talents, and we also own we own our sin. And and racism's origin is in the human heart. And it's when I begin to understand my own heart and the racism that may be there, my own personal racism, then I can begin to say, well, my racism then joins all this other racism and it becomes systemic racism. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And you can all of a sudden understand that racism is personal sin, but racism is also societal sin. It's it's systemic. It has it has leaked into all of our structures and and our systems. And you know um, that is why um, you know we have a very negative view of young African American males. That is what the system. That is what mm -hmm. systemic racism has taught us, or that right. you know, black lives really don't matter. All of that is an outgrowth of, of my own personal racism that has fueled this system of racism that also needs to be dismantled. Right. And, and I think that this is why we have to understand that we're seeing the call for reform, be it police reform or others, other, other changes, that all of those are going to be good, but this, for the systemic change to take place, it's going to have to take place in our lives and in our hearts. Yeah, which is that's why where it go, so that the law can then can be followed. Otherwise, the law will change, but we'll be the same. Yeah, which is why why open wide our hearts. And I, the Pope has also said it. It requires a conversion. Yes, a conversion. Um, so, I've heard. You know, I was just having a conversation, a very powerful conversation with a very good friend of mine uh, a couple nights ago. He's he's black, Panamanian, Latino. Um, we've known each other for 45 years, have never spoken about race. It's never it's never been an issue. Um, and he was telling me about how the, the, the opposite of racism is anti-racism, that we need to actively do things. But, I've, but I'm also intrigued by the fact that Open Wide Our Hearts says that, talks about right relationship, uh, almost as if right relationship was what we need, that that's the antidote or the opposite of, of racism. Why, what would you say about right relationship and what that means? I think right relationship roots itself in justice which is to do that which is right by each and every person, you know, to, to do that which is good and to do that which is right for each and every person. And that's, that's most authentically rooted in relationship. Justice is, is what we're striving after. Justice desires that each and every person, you know, I'm just going to be respected for their human dignity, you know, um, have human rights, have, have all of those things that, that are going to, to help them to become and to grow into the person that, that God has created them to be. And for us to have the relationship that God desires of us as well. So I think all of that is, is part of, of right relationship. I think all of that is, is part of justice. Right. Bishop Terry? And uh, I simply listen to what Jesus says, love one another. It brings us back to the heart. And in doing that, then if I have love for one another, I am going to do the right thing. And I'm going to be the right thing to, for, the, for that person. There I will be seeing that person as equal to me. And, uh, and, and will then be just with that person and want to walk humbly before God in the right way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, and I guess that's where, where I think a lot of people struggle because like where I live, you know, it's predominantly a, a white area. There, there, there are immigrants, but from Portugal and other places, Holland, not, not a lot of African Canadians or, or black Canadians. Um, so I might not see racism 
play out the way somebody might see it in in other places. Um, but that conversion requires me to see. See, it's easy for me to think that I see everyone as a brother and a sister, and they're my brothers, and that's the right relationship. But I'm not sure what that looks like if I don't encounter active racism that I can that I can actively work against. Does that make sense? So I guess the question is for for Catholics who who agree with what the church teaches about respecting the dignity of every human person and that it's a life issue and about justice and social issues. But if I don't actively see the racism, I guess first I have to open my eyes to to, to recognize it. Yes. Um, but then what else can we do to to begin to 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 be agents of that change? Yeah, you know, you you made the statement it's not enough just to be uh, against racism. You have to be an anti-racist. You know, many men, good people, will say, "Well, I'm not a racist." Well, within what we're dealing with now, that is wonderful, but it's not enough <laughs> to say that. You know, uh, you have to be anti-racist means that we have to be doing something to dismantle. Uh, the system of racism to to dismantle racism as it manifests itself. There are so many things that people can do, you know, just a conversation with a person of a different race to get their perspective. You can read Open Wide Our Hearts. It also has a study guide. You know, you can attend. Right now there's so many seminars with regard to mm -hmm. understanding racism and, and examining your own heart with regard to racism. You can read and educate yourself, you can peacefully protest, you know, uh, injustice and racism. And finally, you know, we can never ever overlook the, the power of prayer. You can pray that racism come to an end. And remember, prayer always has an active component, that prayer should be compelling you to do something. So there are many, many ways that, that we can begin to uh, to dismantle the, the, the racism that, that we see around us and many, many opportunities. But, you know, we can't simply sit back and say, well, I'm, I'm not a racist. I'm glad you're not. But now we have to be doing something to overcome. Yeah, if anything, I, I think the question is not, uh, am I a racist, but how am I a racist? Exactly. And what are the little things that I don't even notice, that those attitudes? Yeah. Um, would either of you say that this is, a watershed moment that 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 this finally were there or are you not how are you feeling I, about that i think it can be i think it can be i don't think uh i think if we do the right thing and strive our best to to address and to end racism i think it can be a watershed moment so i'm i'm hoping that it will be that's, that's how I look at it. I think it can be if we all do the right thing. And right now, the question is, will it be? Bishop Terry, do you think? And I think it's, it's a, it is also it is a, a, a watershed moment, if, if you will, uh, precisely because now all of a sudden, it's the people who have come out peacefully to say, this is enough. You know, why can't you see what has been going on for years now and that they are not going to let that go right now they're going to be actively working to see this is a moment when we have to make those systemic changes yes 
mm-hmm. and and then operate from there, which is why you you find they're meeting with the with the for police reforms and everything else. But as I say, that's just the starting point. We have to right. get it to the heart. Yeah, and it's not it's not just black people that are protesting. There's a lot of other people. That's um, correct. That's the good. That's the good point. Yeah, I will say this is, I think, another unique moment. Mm-hmm. A unique yes. moment where, yeah. where I think God's grace is is available, you know, um, as God's grace is always available. But I think God's grace is available in this unique moment. So it's a unique moment, and I hope that it becomes a watershed moment. You know that that will really advance uh, our efforts to end racism. Do you think that it's that the church can be a leader in this movement? Or should be? I think the church should be. And I do think that the church is in the unique position to bring people of different races and cultures together to encounter one another. You know, that famous phrase of of Pope Francis, you know, and I think that the church can can be a leader, is being a leader, and and it's, it's uniquely positioned to bring people of different races and cultures together to talk about these things. Mm-hmm. And I agree with that. I think that's that this is a well, this is the moment for the church to really begin pulling all of us together. Yes. And operating as one. Mm-hmm. And we are coming together, I think. And 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 a lot of us do see uh each other as brothers and sisters. And right. And, and so it's it's wonderful. I'm I'm ashamed to say that it's probably one of the very few times I've had this conversation and I expect to and I'm going to make a point of having it more and more. Um, thank you for helping us open open our hearts a little <laughs> bit wider today. Um, thank you. Thank you for this important conversation with us. Well, thank you. You're thank welcome. you for the invitation for your openness. That was a conversation I had with Bishop Shelton Fab of Homa Thibodeau and Terry Steib, Bishop Emeritus of Memphis. You can watch the whole interview as part of our series, Faith in a Time of Crisis, at saltandlighttv.org. You can also send your comments to me via email, pedro at saltandlighttv.org. What are your thoughts on racism? How do you think Catholics should respond to racism? You can also send your comments to me via social media. Coming up is our final conversation, this one with Canada's primate, Cardinal Gerald Lacroix, Archbishop of Quebec. From April to June 2020, we spoke to bishops and faith leaders across the country as we tried to make sense of the times we were living. We faced church closures, mass shootings, and racial tensions. As we began to get back to normal, I spoke with Cardinal Gerald Lacroix of Quebec City about how COVID-19 has affected the church in our country. Here is part of that conversation. Another thing I discovered also is how we need to work a lot more to strengthen uh, the domestic church, the families. Uh, many families suffered through this. Mm-hmm. Not used to living together, mom and dad with the kids in the same house for two or three months, closed in. Uh, it's been difficult for some, you know. And even for older couples who are used to going out and having social activities either together or with other people, and sometimes the husband goes someplace and the, the wife someplace else, 
Now they've been together sometimes in the same little apartment for months. It's been difficult. So we need to be able to, to be closer and help our families and couples. But also, I mentioned it at the beginning, most of the people affected by this, uh, by this uh, uh, virus, by this coronavirus, are elderly people. This has been a wake-up call for us. We need to find new ways to take better care of our elderly and our, our grandparents and great-grandparents and people who are ill, who are isolated. You know, I discovered something that shocked me. The media said one day, and it's been repeated quite a few times, that 90% of people in homes do not receive any visit. It's true. I had a hard time believing it. I said, it's a mistake. It can't be true. But after hearing it a few times and listening to people who work in, in, in homes for the elderly or hospitals where a long-term care, mm-hmm. I guess it's pretty well, it's pretty true. And it's very sad. That is not admissible for us Christians. We no. need, we need to reach out and take care a better care of our elderly. This is a wake up call for yes, us. It is. Unfortunately, sometimes it takes a crisis for us to realize some important, uh, to learn some important lessons like that one. Yeah. Um, and, and as you said, we are a sacramental people. Do you think that as we slowly phase back into that sacramental life in the parishes, do you think that the church will be able to go back to what it was like before? Or is this forever changed the church and how we worship together? I hope and pray we never go back to what we were before. <laughs> do I scandalize you when I say that? Yes, yes. What do you mean? No, we can't go back to where we were before because... Life has changed. The world has changed. Uh, we have uh, awakened. Uh, our eyes have been opened to new realities, and we need to address them. We can't go back to what we were and start over where we were in February or March when things slowed down and stopped. No, uh, we need to be different. Uh, we cannot just take care of the people we have inside our walls, the walls of our church. Yes. We need to take care of all this population that the Lord has entrusted us that are in our care. You know, I told you at the beginning of this interview that I have a million Catholics in my diocese. Do you think all million, all million of them are in church every Sunday? Do you think they're all married and, 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 and growing in their faith? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not up to me to judge, but from what I see, I would say that not more than three or 4% our church goers. I say that very sadly, uh, Deacon Pedro. It's not, it's not a, a proud thing to say, on the contrary. But I think this is a wake-up call to become a more missionary church. Mm-hmm. We cannot just take care of those who come to us and come celebrate. We can't just preach yeah. to the choir. We need to preach to the world. Go out to the world and preach the good news. Go, yes. go. Go yes. and preach. Go and baptize. Go and have people grow in their faith. So we need to get our, our, uh, our, our things straight and our priorities straight. And this missionary aspect, which Pope Francis continuously invites us to, 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 to do, right. it's, it's time we stop talking about it and saying yes. it's important. It's got to be a priority. This is urgent. We need to, we've got to stop saying that and start doing it. Yeah, it's and true. I and I think uh, yeah. that's why we can't go back to what we were. Yeah. You know? Again, again, I'm fortunate how it takes a crisis for us to, to learn that lesson. And I'll never forget one of the, the, the things that I've heard you say, probably the last time I was in Quebec City, when you said, you know, what time is it? 
It's time it, to evangelize. It's time to evangelize. Yes, it is. Absolutely. I repeat that often because uh, yeah. that's what the church has been telling us. Do you remember? Oh, you're too young. Maybe you don't remember that. 1990, 10 <laughs> years before the great Jubilee, Pope John Paul, St. John Paul II, yeah. launched a decade of evangelization, a decade to prepare ourselves for the Jubilee of new evangelization. Yeah. What have we done? We're 30 years after this, and, and our, 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 our Quebec, and I would say our Canada, is less and less Christian. Yeah. Yeah. Our world is more secularized than ever. Mm. I mean, we have Christian roots here, but we're not seeing new sprouts. We're not seeing new life. Uh, and that's not yeah. what the Lord is calling us to do. So we need to get our act together. I mean, I'm saying this in a very casual way. But uh, yeah. me, that's what we're working on. And we need, to, we need to renew our personal relationship with the Lord. We need to continue letting the Lord transform us and having a new Pentecost experience so we can open our doors and our windows and go out. Yes. Out to this world. Yes. And, uh, you know, we, we, we've been confined now for three months. Now we're opening up. Let's not confine ourselves again inside our walls. Mm -hmm. that we're not sent just to be inside our churches and our yes. rectory halls and all of this. We need to be out yes. in the world, Go and the world needs it. to hear the good news and see witnesses. That's yes. you and me and all the rest of us uh, Christians. So That's it. That's it. The, yes. the doors of the church have to be opened. Those are, it, you, you, I, I, I do take these words from you as encouragement, not as, as scolding. Um, did you find that that was the message that you that you felt you had to give the people of your archdiocese throughout the last couple of months? That that was the encouraging message. Was there another message of encouragement? Well I, well, I wasn't as strong as I am with you today, because when you're going through a crisis that affects you so much, we had a lot of people who were more depressed, who were mm -hmm. very worried. It's not time to it's not time to speak harshly. Yes. We have to be good and listen and encourage. I had a lot of messages of encouragement, inviting people to respect what the, uh, what the health authorities, what our government was asking us to do, to save lives, to not contaminate other people or have them contaminate us with this, uh, this COVID-19. We, we were, we tried to have a very hopeful message. Mm -hmm. But as we start coming out of this, we need to see how we're gonna, how we're gonna react and what will be our priorities. And that's where we are now. So uh, now I think yeah. we need to speak a little louder, not to scold, not to scold, but to exhort. Exhort, to that's the word. Exhort is much better than scold. I'm not a scolder, <laughs> but I, 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 but because the, the gospel doesn't scold us too often, but it exhorts us really to, to be missionaries and to, to share the good news that is making us filled with hope and joy. Mm -hmm. The joy of the gospel is to be shared. It is true. It is and true so with a that, smile. That's what doing. Yeah. Do you do you think that this has been a time, an especially good time for us to grow in our faith? Yes. You know, there are challenges. This is a crisis, but this is also a time of opportunity. A time of opportunities. Uh, a lot of my colleagues, bishops or priests, deacons, even lay people have told me, you know, uh, Cardinal, uh, these months have given me more time to reflect and to pray. I've had more time to pray with the, with the divine office, the word of God, my rosary, silent prayer than before. We, we, know, we run so much. 
we're always on a very busy schedule and we think that what we're doing is so important that we have no time, not enough time for others and not enough time for the Lord often. So uh, I think we've discovered that, that we need to do that. That's the first point. Be rooted in Christ, rooted in the Word of God, rooted in a personal relationship that renews us, that gives us every morning when we get up what we need to be good shepherds and good and good disciples of Jesus Christ. So that's where we're at right now. And I think that's a great opportunity. Now we need to sit down together and say, what is the Holy Spirit telling our church? What's the Holy Spirit telling our community where we need to go from here? We read the Acts of the Apostles all through the Paschal season. Yeah. I love the Acts of the Apostles Me in too. the days because we see how they dealt with crisis and challenges and difficulties and persecution and all the rest. And the, the gospel grew and the word of God made progress and communities were born and, and Christians were rooted in the Lord. I mean, that's, that's what we look to, you know? So, yes. you know, you said, uh, what's the name of this program? You call it? Uh, Faith in a Time of Crisis. Isn't that the story of our life, that, Pedro? That's the story of the church, yes. It's the story of the church, and it's the story of our life. Mm -hmm. Crisis make us grow as much as good events, you know, if we know how to go through them. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many times people have said, wow, this crisis in my life is an eye-opener. It was an opportunity for me to change, you know. I just experienced something like this. I was operated. I had a surgery in early January, a bariatric surgery. My weight was way, way too, way too important, and my health could have deteriorated, deteriorated rapidly. And my doctor had been speaking to me about this for quite a while. And I took the decision last year, and I, I went through the surgery in January, and that requested three months of convalescence after, uh -huh. very strict convalescence, not just to let the stomach heal, uh, because they take a part of your stomach out, but to, to, to really readjust to a new form of living. So that was a crisis for me, but what an opportunity. I feel great today. I've lost a few pounds, um, more than a few pounds, but uh, I'm healthier and I'll be able to serve in, in better conditions, God willing, you know? So, yes. but we live in a spiritual way also, a crisis that can be opportunities if we take them seriously. Mm -hmm. The Lord does not abandon us. He's with us and he's always pointing ahead. Go ahead, go ahead, always. advance. Yes. Go in the deep. Yes, and allowing the crises so that uh, he can stretch us and help us grow. Um, Cardinal Gerald Lacroix, uh, Archbishop of Quebec, has been, been so good uh, hearing you, seeing you today and, and hearing those words of encouragement and exhortation as we return back to normal. But as you said, not the way it used to be, but the way we should be, which is a missionary church. Sure, um, sure. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much. And don't forget the time. It is time to evangelize. Time to evangelize. God bless and to all those who are listeners today, all your faithful and light. Continue your great work. God bless you. That was an excerpt of a conversation I had with Cardinal Gerald Lacroix, Archbishop of Quebec, in June 2020. And that brings us to the end of our program today. I spoke to Cardinal Lacroix as part of our series, Faith in a Time of Crisis. You can watch all of those interviews at saltandlighttv.org slash faith in a time of crisis. Remember to visit our website, saltandlighttv.org, often 
in order to find out everything you want to know about Salt and Light Media and how you can support our ministry because we cannot do this without your support. You can write to me with your thoughts on what you hear on this program via email, pedro at saltandlighttv.org. I promise to respond to each and every email I receive. You can also contact me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just look for Deacon Pedro. You can subscribe to the Salt and Light Hour wherever you get your podcasts to be sure that you don't miss any episodes. And while you're there, give us a good review and lots of stars so that others can also find our podcast. I pray that you're finding ways to strengthen your faith during these times of crisis. Thank you for being with us today. I'm Deacon Pedro.